Hey guys, Sklar Brothers here from View from the Cheap Seats podcast. And this week we have one of the best sports writers in the game. And he's got a great podcast as well. Jonah Carey joins us on the podcast. Did you have fun on View from the Cheap Seats, Jonah? I had the most fun and my commute was about 14 steps down to my living room. We did it in your living room. We're in Denver. It's a little road. uh, I'm going to call it a road victory for us all. We all There's no one I want to talk to more than who right now during these baseball playoffs than than Jonah Jonah Carey. Carey. So join us on this episode because we take the deepest dive. Let me just say there is a three a <laughs> Mordecai three, three finger, finger brown reference. There you go. That's and by there. the way, Gar Ryness is not here. I'm kissing him. I'm, I'm giving love. a shout out now. I feel like he always needs to be at least in spirit. When we love talk. to the batting stance yes. guy. Guys, I want to tell you about a great sponsor I have, Bompus. They're premium high performance athletic socks, and they're so comfortable you're never going to want to take them off. And because socks are the number one requested item in homeless shelters, for every pair of socks purchased, Bompus donates one pair of those to those in need. Almost 1 million pairs donated to date. 15% off the first purchase of four or more socks. Plus free shipping. So go to getbompus.com slash feral and buy some comfortable socks. Feral Audio. Welcome to Conversations with Matt Dwyer. I'm Matt Dwyer. If you like my theme music there, that is a band called Les Blanks. Check out some Les Blanks on the old interwebs at lesblanks.com. If you are a first-time listener to my show, thank you very much and welcome. I really uh, am thrilled to always have a new listener. I hope you check out my archives and uh, find some other episodes you might uh, enjoy listening to at the old feralaudio.com slash conversations with Matt Dwyer. Uh, the title is just what uh, implies what the show is. I have a conversation with a great, awesome person. Uh, I've spoken to a lot of uh, legendary activists, musicians, artists, filmmakers. Uh, today I speak with Michael Kaplan, who is a documentarian. Did a great film on uh, one of my all-time favorite writers, Nelson Algren. If you haven't read Nelson Algren's works, like, and we talk about this a little bit in the episode, but for the love of God, if you like to read... Read some Nelson Algren. He's um, he's certainly highly respected and and he's well known, but he doesn't get the due that he. I've been reading him lately, and uh, usually around fall, around this time of year, I get. I'm always homesick for Chicago, but around this time of year, I get extra homesick for Chicago. Like I'm not kidding you. Like I've, on my toolbar on my on my browser, I have three webcams that look over Chicago live. One looks over the Chicago River by the Marina uh, Towers. Another one is from the Field Museum of Downtown, and the other one is on Wrigley Field. And I usually, like, every morning or night, go and check them out and, like, hey, how's the morning look in Chicago? And then, like, you know, when I'm having my evening drinks, I'm like, what it would be like to be walking down, you know, LaSalle Street right now over that river. Uh, And, actually, you know, I do this, like, three times. I'm in... And, like, I think it's autumn, and I kind of, I really, like, it's been 80 degrees in L.A., and um, I just want to put on a sweater, man, and I want to have maybe just not the sun beat down on my face like a boxer. Uh, it's just, like, uh, it just it gets, people, I think, people who don't live in Southern California don't understand how, just how goddamn sick of the sun you get. Like, I'm just, I've had it. Like, go away. Give, I w- let me wear a hat. 
Though a lot of people in L.A. wear knit caps and scarves when it's 90 degrees, which I'm like, are you... If you're if you're not like got some rare disease or are kicking heroin, knock it off because you just look like an asshole. But I'm so homesick. I've been and every time I get homesick, it starts costing me money. I've been buying like tons of Mike Royko books. Not to brag, I got an autographed one, and uh, and I just I I I don't know. I really I would like to move back. Uh, it is something I've really struggled with. I've been in Los Angeles for 13 years, something like that, and I don't know. I get it. I've, L.A., I get what you're about. I don't hate you, but I feel like it's just a, you know, it's like a a woman you've been with long enough, and it's just become common law, and you just you just sort of accept it, and you're just like, eh, what am I going to do? I You know, we got a kid and a trailer, and I'm just going to, hang out with Los Angeles for, but I just, but then I just, I, and then I reminisce about my beautiful ex who I just loved and made them, and which is actually like I did with a lot of my ex-girlfriends that were great. I screwed it up and left. <laughs> and now I just pine for my old lady Chicago. And it's, it's hard. And, you know, maybe I romanticize it because, you know, last year they had 50 below weather and I don't, I think it would kill my dog Charlie for starters, but I just, I don't know if I could take it. But then I'd be able to go to the Billy Goat Tavern and have an old style or, and like maybe a little bit of whiskey and a cheeseburger and I wouldn't give a shit because I would be in the Billy Goat or Twin Anchors or Simon's or the public library just because I felt like I had to say some place that didn't serve liquor so I didn't sound like some raging alcoholic. Uh... But I just, there's a mystique and a magic about these old places and and Chicago, and I just, I can't kick it. I thought I could kick it. I've lied to myself. I can't kick it. I love you, Chicago. I want you back. Um, if, uh, just before we get into the conversation here with Mike Kaplan, which I love, a lot of information about Nelson Algren, if you like Nelson Algren and Chicago and filmmaking. Um, but uh, go to themattdwyer.com, check out my website, follow me on Twitter. And uh, go to the Feral Audio Conversations with Matt Dwyer page and donate if you can. If not, uh, use the Amazon link when you do all your shopping and we get a kickback. All right, enough. Uh, here is uh, uh, the great filmmaker, Michael Kaplan. For starters, the the film is incredible. I mm. and uh, I've posted about it, and all my friends are. I have had a million people be like, "Where can I see this?" And uh, oh, thanks, thanks. Yeah, that's that's great. Appreciate it. Uh, I'm curious what what attracted you to Algren initially. Uh, are we in the interview now? Oh yeah, yeah. I I'm sorry. I I kind of have a casual approach. Okay. That's fine. Uh, do I sound okay on the iPhone? Uh, you sound perfect. All right, cool. Um, all right, back to it. <laughs> okay, um, well, I grew up in Chicago on the southeast side of Chicago, which most people even from Chicago don't know where that is, but it's, it's, it's almost in Indiana, and it's down by the steel mills. And it was kind of a mixed neighborhood, middle class, working class, um, 
And, uh, you know, the, the Chicago I knew growing up was, was one of, you know, many, many, many classes, many, uh, many villages. And, um, so when I first read Nelson Algren in my early twenties, I immediately recognized, you know, the Chicago that he was describing. And it was, uh, you know, a place where, um, you know, uh, you know, middle class, rich and poor all kind of coexisted. But, you know, for most of us, we walk down the street and if there's a certain bar, you know, with a certain type of people in it, you don't go in, you know, um, you stay away. And if you're a kid, you know, like when I was a kid, you just, your parents just would say, stay away from that block, you know. So um, this all kind of like was a setup for, you know, when I uh, met um, the photographer Art Shea, who was a young man of 87 when I met him. Um, Art is now 92 and still, you know, thriving. Um, and Art really was the person in terms of uh, documenting Nelson and being friends with him and, and going out into the uh, – you know, the neon wilderness and taking pictures of that world. And so when I met Art in uh, 2008, the first thing I said was, you know, Mr. Shea, I just love your work, um, especially that of Nelson Algren. And he said, ah, Nelson Algren, ah, yeah, you, you should do a documentary about him once he found out that I was a documentary filmmaker. Um, and I was just kind of astounded that no one had it just, you know, it, it kind of blew me away. And so I said, uh, yeah, sure, I'll do that. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know, you got to be careful what you say, what you wish for, because then you actually have to spend the next, you know, five years doing it. Yeah, just by, I mean, the, the footage and it just seemed like it must have been an, an extensive amount of uh, research and because there's not a lot of, like, he was a pretty reclusive dude, was he not? And so there isn't, like, a lot of video of him speaking and whatnot, is there? Well, there's not a lot of video. There was a ton of audio, which most of came from his uh, interviews with Suds Turkle on the radio. But we also turned up some stuff that had never been heard, like um, anti-Vietnam War speeches, that type of thing. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. So that was that was pretty amazing, but no, there was there there's 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 a very small amount of video and film of him, and um, everything else is either audio or photographs. So we wanted to you know figure out a way to make that work and keep it visually um, interesting and orally interesting, telling a, a story about a uh, a writer you know in a way that that keeps people's interest. So that that was really, you know, that was our goal. And it it seems like that would be a challenge, which I would say you did incredibly. I mean, it's I could just sit there and I could probably rewatch that over and over again. It's... <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, no, I mean our goal was just to make it as jam packed, you know, as um, Algren's work. And um, you know, we spent. Uh, probably about eight days in his archive over the course of three years. And um, if you go through his um, manuscripts, you know, he rewrote this stuff um, 
you know, extensively. And he really, he was a wordsmith. And so we were just trying to really do the same thing, kind of match his work through what we were doing on film. Yeah, it's incredible because you show some of the manuscripts and you, you look at the way writers had to write back then and you're like, boy, we'd have so many less writers if, if we didn't have laptops, <laughs> which would be a really good thing, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you could definitely say that. I think it's definitely, you know. Um, yeah, I mean, just the amount of, you know, he didn't have a secretary. It was him, you know. I mean, and if, if your page got too messy, you had to rewrite the whole thing, you know. Yeah, it's it's in, it's incredible. So yeah, he was he was he was a man dedicated to his typewriter, you know, that's for sure. Yeah, did he is there like an official archive and like a museum or anything that holds all his work or how how did you go about um, finding there it? There is an archive and um you know like many things for Augren, you know, there's kind of a dark side to it. Um the archive is in um Ohio State University in their library, and they've got some great literary um, people like Thurber there as well. Um, and then the next question is, well, why is it in Ohio instead of in Chicago? And the answer is because they were the only ones who were willing to pay him, you know, anything close to what it was worth to get the um, get the access to the archives. So, um, you know, we would. Uh, my producer, Gail Sonnenfeld, and I would drive to uh, Ohio and we'd just spend, you know, two, three days there and then, you know, take a lot of photographs and then come back. That's a real shame that that's not in Chicago. That seems like it's a crime, quite frankly. It's a total crime. And, and you know, things like the, um, the, uh, the collages, you know, which just blew us away that, you know, Aldrin had done these collages as artwork for, for years and put them up on his own walls. And they're, they're huge. They're three, four, five feet high. And um, uh, he was an artist, and nobody knows this because, you know, these, these uh, collages are sitting there in the archives. Yeah, it's. I never knew about those uh, collages until I saw the documentary, and I was fast. I was like, I want... I want to see them. I want to like. I want to see them up close. And it's are they tucked away or do you are they out in the open? No, they're totally tucked away. I got to get rich so I can s steal all that stuff. <laughs> yeah, I know. Or just you know pay for a. Um, well, actually, what we'd like to do in you know 2015 is is do a, an actual exhibit. You know, work with the um, work with the. Um, uh, the archive and his um, estate to uh, you know to do that. Now, yeah. Now, as as you did the documentary, because you were already a Nelson, you were already a Nelson Algren fan. But did you find yourself uh, learning more and sort of liking him more, or were you discovering sort of more darker undertones to the man? Yeah, it was a little bit of both. I mean, the the, the guy was really complex. There's there's no question. Um, so my sense of him, um, you know, was, was like the man of the neon wilderness. You know, I, we call him the poet of the neon wilderness. He, you know, he, he lived amongst the people that he wrote about. And, you know, he, he walked the walk, he talked the talk. But, um, you know, what we found out was some parts of him were really lighthearted and he had an amazing sense of humor. Um, 
and that sometimes he could be really, you know, dark and morose, you know. Um, he was not, you know, like the kind of classic I think we think a lot of, you know, the Dylan Thomas or the Bukowskis. He was not, you know, uh, an alcoholic, even though he lived amongst people who were like that. So he wasn't dark in that way. It was more just kind of like, I want to be alone, I want to write, and I just, you know, I just want things to be kind of uh, solitude. So, you know, um, but he liked to get out as much as anybody. And um, what I did, another thing I didn't know is how much he could live both the high life and the low life. So I knew the low life, but I didn't realize how much he could go to, you know, these Gold Coast parties in Chicago, you know, and hang out with uh, the people who wanted to, you know, see the seamy, the guy who hung out with the seamy side of the people, you know. And so he could do that. He could put on a suit and, um, you know, and go do that. Although, you know, when he put on a suit, you know, sometimes he put on a rope instead of a belt. <laughs> Which is just hilarious, just to kind of like, like, put his thumb in the eye, you know, of the people, you know, who were the, who were there, you know, drinking and, you know, wanting to, you know, hang with the artists. And it was kind of like a little bit like, I'll be there, I'll talk with you, but, you know, you you don't got me, you know. <laughs> you don't you. Br- uh, yeah, it's real. I mean, it was pretty. He'd be pr- pretty funny and pretty provocative. You know, you bring up Bukowski, and I, it's interesting because it's been driving me nuts for a long time how Bukowski is better known than Nelson Algren, I would say. Or, and it's oh yeah, oh no, there's no question. It it bugs me because I feel like first of all, Algren was, I think, unless I'm nuts, he was pretty a- ahead of, of. He was no, he absolutely was. Yeah, and it's just to me, it's like, I don't know. I, he's a far better writer than Bukowski, and I think far more complex. And the only thing that I could sort of, in my theory, was that Bukowski made everything about him. And I think in the in sort of in the ways of a true Chicagoan, Algren made it about, as did Studs Terkel, about other people. Correct. Correct. And I think that's such. Uh, that's such an insightful kind of uh, way to look at it because his, his, his thing was all about telling us about the world. It's not, um, let me tell you about me and, you know, this woman I had sex with or these, you know, these drunks that I hang out with and what we did. It was the exact opposite. It was, it was, I'm, I'm a reporter, you know, it's just he wrote in a literary way. I mean, you're right. He was a better, way better writer than Bukowski. He was way, I'd say, you know, way better than any of the beat writers. You know, um, he 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 was a he really crafted his words. You know, um, and for the beats, you know, and I mean, I like a lot of those guys. You know, Burroughs and um, Allen Ginsberg and all those. But I mean, for them, it was really about like it's all about me. You know, it was, I think, a shift from that, you know, that pre-World War II generation to the uh, the baby boomers, you know. And the baby boomers were very much like, let me, I mean, they were actually really pre-baby boomers too. Um, but it was kind of like the beginning of that, of like the navel-gazing and let me tell you about my story. 
you know. It's interesting because that seems to be predominant ever since, and it's, you don't, I mean, unless I'm being completely ignorant, I don't feel like there are writers in the vein of Nelson Algren or, or Studs Terkel anymore. You do, you know, I don't really see it. I mean, I think, um, you know, I think Alex Kotlowitz, you know, is a great urban writer, but his stuff is nonfiction. You know, I would say that he definitely, um, you know, uh, does it. And I think there are a few, I think there are a few Chicago writers, um, who who do do who 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 I think attempt to do that more or less. Um, I think if you see like uh, to me um, the embodiment of a uh, good TV is The Wire, and The Wire to me does that. You know, it's interesting because David Simon came from the world of reporting, as did uh, Nelson Algren. So that's an interesting uh, no, sort of that's connection. true. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. I think that is, no, because Nelson Algren, you know, he went to journalism school. So. Yeah, it's it's interesting because I, when I first, I like, I had read Bukowski and I'd read The Beats before I heard Nelson Algren. And there was actually in Chicago a staged um, production sort of of, of Neon Wilderness. At, it's actually, at, it's the Second City ETC. And the first okay. time, do you recall that at all? This is probably like late eighties. Yeah, I, I I don't I never saw it, but I do recall that it you know, yeah. And it just like when I first heard Nelson Algren's writing, it just I mean, it was like a world opened up, and I sort of forgot about some of those. Like Bukowski became second to to like immediately, and yeah, I just I don't. Do you feel like he's starting to get his? sort of his due if that well i hope so you know i mean <laughs> right you know i mean uh, the, certainly we hope that we can create some energy in that direction you know um that's 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 obviously one of our big goals is to get get things going in that direction so um i think it's a good time for him you know to be embraced because i think you know, if you think about, you know, Frankie Machine, you know, who's the, 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 you know, the protagonist, the man with the golden arm, he's, you know, a guy who comes back from World War II and he's, he's a junkie, he's a drug addict because, you know, he got on painkillers. And, um, you know, I think about, you know, all these people coming back from, you know, the Iraq War or Afghani War and, you know, Sitting, they're they're sitting in different neighborhoods, but you know there are people that are just forgotten. They're on, they're 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 also addicted to painkillers. You know, they're also someone that you know we just as soon kind of forget about these things. So I think you know I think it's I think there's always a, I think it's always a good time to uh, you know revisit his, his work. Yeah, it's. It's interesting when you're saying that. I'm thinking too, like the di- difference between like Bukowski and those guys is there's a glorification of uh, and a sort of a romanticizing of these worlds where Algren was like, here it is, and it's a lot. And I don't like people seem would rather live in the fantasy than the reality. Well, yeah, I mean, I think um, you know Philip Kaufman, one of the people we interviewed, an amazing filmmaker, you know, unto himself. 
um, he 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 was a friend of Algren, and he said there was kind of like a a a dark um, compassion, you know. So there was a compassion for these people. It wasn't a glorification of them, and it wasn't putting them down. It was just saying, here it is. This is it. You know, this is your world. This is our world. Pay attention. Yeah, I'm, there's stories in the neon wilderness that bring tears to my eyes, which I don't, you don't get that with a lot of the other writers. I mean, there's such a just sadness and truth to it that is at times heart-wrenching. <laughs> oh, I think, I think that's a great way to put it. You know, it is totally heart-wrenching. It's just, uh, it's just, this. It's, it's brutal. It's, you know, these are people, they're stuck and they don't know how to get out. Yeah. Now to move back towards just you and the film, like when you when you agree when you're like, okay, I'm going to make a film about Nelson Algren, I cannot imagine the daunting task that like, where do you even begin with something like that? It's it's not easy. Um, you know, uh, we 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 kind of just followed, you know, what's in front of us. You know, we we just started doing research who's out there who knows him, you know, who's out there who's interested in him, who's out there who feels like they are linked, you know, in some ways, like as an artist to uh, his work. And um, it just kind of led outwards from there. So, you know, by, you know, the summer of 2009, we just started um, interviewing people, some people, like Rick Kogan, who's a uh, newspaper man, journalist in uh, Chicago. Um, he knew him. Um, and uh, then um, Art Shea, of course, the photographer, we, we interviewed him. And then there were a couple other people who didn't know him, but they were um, painters, you know, who felt like there they was a kinship, like they had gotten some inspiration from reading his work. And that's just really how it started. You know, and then and then it just kind of expanded from there, where we would say, "Oh, did you know that this guy knew, you know, Algren, or you know, did uh, you know, have you uh, you know heard about this person?" So it just it just kind of expanded there, and we just reached out to people in New York, you know, in San Francisco, in L.A., and would just uh, set up trips and say, "Okay, how can we fill this trip?" You know, can we interview three people. Okay. Um, but you know, we'll do it. Gosh, it and was... it just, it, it just, it really, you know, it, there's a reason it took five years. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, you don't think, oh, this is going to take five years. You just say, oh, I want to do this. And then, you know, later on, <laughs> you say, Jesus, I'm glad I didn't know, you know, that it was going to take five years because I wouldn't have done it, you know, or I might not have, or I probably would have, I guess, you know, I don't know. I don't know what I would have done differently, you know, except, you know, have wealthier parents. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because you, you did a, uh, like a fund, not a, what is it, Kickstarter and all Kickstarter, that stuff. Kickstarter, right. Yeah, we did that, and um, that didn't actually work. It was kind of in the early days of that. Um, we did, you know, get some, We, you know, we did get a, about $10,000 committed, but then um, with Kickstarter, you don't get it unless you raise the whole amount. But then later we did get it from people. You know, we got some of it just through individual donations. We got some grants. But we spent a lot of our own money 
on it too. You know, so it was, it, it, I mean, you're really, you know, you're in for a pound and for a penny, you know, it's, I mean, you're, you're in for it. Once you, once you commit to it, you gotta, you gotta see it through. Yeah. I, I would imagine there was a few times where you were probably like, Oh my God, what have I done? Um, you know, um, there are times like when you're, you know, driving, um, you know, like we were driving to upstate New York, um, to interview Russell Banks and, uh, this other friend of, um, Algren's Roger Graining. And, um, it was just like after one of the tropical storms had just gone through upstate New York. I can't remember which one. And, you know, we, there were all these roadblocks because, you know, trees had been knocked over and we're driving, you know, through all these detours. And you just kind of say, what, what the hell are we doing here? I mean, this is just crazy, you know, and you're basically going to sit down with this person who's very nice, you know, and has great stuff to say, but you're sitting down with them for an hour. And then you just say, okay, bye. And then, you know, back to the hotel and you're just kind of like, okay, well, we got that. That was good. You know? Um, what do we do now? You know, it's, it's a crazy way to, uh, to make, you know, to make a, to make a movie, you know, it's not like making a fiction movie where you've got, you know, a 10 hour day or 12 hour day and you feel like, oh, we're working, you know, getting things done here. It's like, we're driving and then we interview and then we're driving and then we interview and now we're done because we got those two interviews. Are you more attracted? Oh, I'm sorry. It's crazy. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was just curious if you're more attracted to making documentaries than fiction film. Yeah, no, that's, that's you know, I, I started doing, um, originally I started producing fiction films for other people. Um, and then I, about 15 years ago, I, I changed over to making documentaries where I was the director, writer, and... Um, you know, I've made three documentaries in 15 years, so my average is five years, so a piece. Yeah, I'm pretty consistent that way. Is it? I what? What about documentary appeals to you more? Um, you know, I mean, there's so many. I think we all know this. There's so many great stories. We always, you know, say things like, "Oh my God, you know, you couldn't write this stuff, right?" <laughs> I mean. And, and, and that's true. I mean, it's just like spoiler alert to anybody who doesn't want to know how it ends. You know, um, it, it's, you know, uh, the end of his life, you know, he had moved out to Sag Harbor on Long Island. Um, he's amongst all these distinguished um, writers who just venerate his work in a way that, you know, no one in Chicago had. He had pretty much been off the, you know, off the uh, off the visibility factor, you know, for 20 years. So here he is in Sag Harbor, and people like Kurt Vonnegut and Peter Matheson, um, just loving his work, hanging out with him. And then he gets into the um, American Academy of Arts and Letters, you know, which is like the highest, you know, it's like being, you know, in the Foreign Legion. It's like you're, you know, you're at the top of your game like the Kennedy Center today, you know. Um, and then he's going to give a party for um, himself, um, and he dies. 
And and it's just it's it's heartbreaking. But you just say, my God, you know, so if you wrote that, someone would just say, oh, come on, a little maudlin here, guys. I mean, come on, <laughs> you know. But that's what happened. It's terrible. It I just I it's and it's upsetting to me too that he never got his due. Like that he felt sort of not fully accepted by Chicago. Like that's why he that's why he left, isn't it? He f- sort of felt like the city didn't appreciate yeah. him. He did feel like he was not appreciated, and it was just tiring, you know, at a certain point, you know, that um, you're just another, uh, you know, bummy writer hanging out, and, um, you know, maybe, you know, you don't want to go to, you know, Ricardo's again, which was a place, you know, that he used to go to a lot to drink, or, you know, um, you know maybe studs is busy now, you know, doing his radio show and he can't hang out with him as much, you know? Um, it just, it, it, it wasn't working for him anymore. But, you know, the reality is he, he spent, you know, um, you know, almost the entirety of his life in Chicago until 1975. We're going to get back to the conversation here in one moment, but I just want to take out this time to... Uh, make you aware of if you go to my page at feralaudio.com the conversations with Matt Dwyer page and if you click on the Amazon link and if you use that anytime you purchase things like uh, groceries um, medicine shampoo DVDs Feral Audio and Conversations with Matt Dwyer gets a kickback of that money and that can help us uh, keep our lights on and buy equipment I currently desperately need a new recorder so I can do more extensive interviews with more than two people at a time uh this would help me out greatly you can also donate through that donate button on my pages as well um so if you really want to buy me a new zoom recorder that would be awesome thank you very much for listening back to the conversation are you when you were talking about uh chicago at the top of this you were saying how what it used to be and it was a lot of little different neighborhoods and stuff and how do you how do you feel about the Chicago that is today, which, I mean, I, I go back a couple times a year, but it, and I'm still very much in love with the city, but it does seem to be, I don't like Wicker Park, which I used to live in. It's, it's just like, I mean, if Algren walked down Division Street, I, I think he would have a heart attack all over again. <laughs> oh my God. He would, no, he would totally, no, I mean, that that's it's that just would be laughable at this point. But you know, I mean, I think it's kind of like if you went to Soho in the '60s and went to Soho now, you know, um, you know, neighborhoods change. So to me, it's not so much the neighborhood. To me, it's kind of like, is it what is the city? Has the city changed? Has it evolved? And um, I'd say yes and no. I mean, in some ways, you still have poor neighborhoods, which people like to pretend are not there. They're just in different places and, you know, different ethnic groups because, you know, he was writing about the poor Polish people, you know. Now it's going to be, you know, mostly African-American or Latino, you know. So um, different places, different culture, but it's just still the same thing. People who feel like they have nowhere to go, they have no choice. And so they do bad things, you know. They, they get into crime, they get into drugs, you know or drinking, or prostitution. I mean, all the same stupid things, you know, that people do, they still do. And the city, 
you know, I mean, he was never a booster for the city. He said, look, you know, Michigan Avenue is beautiful. Today you'd say, oh, it's Millennium Park, you know, it's the Bean. But the reality is it doesn't change the fact that there are lots of people who are not seeing, you know, it's not seeing that type of, uh, their, their neighborhoods are not beautiful. They're not getting money from the city. They don't have clout, you know, to use that old expression that, you know, Mike Reichel used to write about Boss Daily. It's like you don't have clout. Yeah, it's, uh, that's, I mean, I am in love with uh, that, the Mike Royko city and that, like, I mean, I, every time I'm in town, I go to the Billy Goat just as homage to, to Royko. And, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's, to me, it's, you know, that old world Chicago is what I love. And I always get afraid that it will lose its sort of working class um, sort of character, but I don't think that's really possible. You know, that is the one thing I got to say that doesn't go away. Um, it, it's still very much a working class place. No matter how much Wicker Park can become shishi, there are lots of new restaurants. You know, we always have, you know, the Chicago Symphony and, you know, there's a, and the Art Institute. But the reality is, um, you know, <clears throat> what I say to people is, you know, nobody stays a star in Chicago. And I think Algren was definitely, you know, an example of that. It's like, yeah, okay, now get back to work. You're wonderful, <laughs> now get back to work, you know? Yeah. You know, it's not like, uh, you know, L.A. or New York, where it's like you could just, you can be a star because you're a star, you know, for years, you know? And it's like they're important because they're on a reality TV show, you know? They're important because they were in a movie, you know, 30 years ago. You know, Chicago isn't like that. It's like, you you know, you get your little boost and everyone's excited. And then it's like, okay, now back to work. Yeah, you know? it, yeah it's interesting. I take the L home, you know, to my, to my little, you know, to my little bungalow in Albany Park. And it's like, you know, that's, you know, it's, it's just back to reality, you know. Is that why you stayed in Chicago, or did or did you ever entertain the idea of moving to um, dreadful, awful Los Angeles, <laughs> which which oh, I am? Sure, absolutely. I mean, I think anybody who works in film had to have thought about it for more than you know, for at least five minutes. You know, um, it's a. <clears throat> I mean, Chicago to me is a place where you've got that mix of working class, but you also you know have people in the arts. And, you know, you can go, you know, to a Thai restaurant, you know, down the street and get some good pot Thai for six bucks, you know. Um, and it's affordable, you know. So, um, and the winters are brutal. I mean, they're horrible sometimes. But the reality is the people who can make it through generally are, you know, you're a little bit tougher. So, yeah, L.A.'s got its appeal, but... Um, you know, um, it's an industry town, you know. It's it's a place that exists, you know, around a filmmaking industry. And um, uh, for documentaries, I feel like, you know, Chicago is one of the centers of the world for for good documentarians. Oh, that's great. I didn't, I had no idea. Why is, why do you think that is? I don't know. It's just, you know, I think, you know, it's just, again, a place where you can tell good stories, you know, and you can afford to live here. 
and you know you can get other work to do while you're uh, making those films. So I mean, there's a lot of great you know documentary filmmakers here, um, and there's a nice little community. Yeah, it's interesting because there's the the comedy, specifically stand-up comedy portion of Los Angeles, is currently being almost, I would say, dominated and driven by Chicagoans. And I think that's just because, like you said, you have to work there. And I think a lot of people, of course, take that ethic and bring it to Los Angeles. And it's like people are always like, man, you Chicago guys are like everywhere. It's like, yeah, because we have to be. We had to fight a bit in Chicago. And it's a great thing. Well, you get a work ethic here. I mean, and everybody says, you know, I teach film at Columbia College in Chicago. Um, I love, you know, knowing that if I send my students out to L.A., that they're they're going to kick ass, you know, that they've got a work ethic out there. And I say, find other Chicagoans when you go out there, because these are people who roll up their sleeves and, you know, they get to work, you know? Yeah. And it's and I mean, and, and then, you know, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, Columbia has become such a dominant film school as well, which is, you know, people always think that they got to go to L.A. or New York to learn film, but, like, Columbia is now, like, one of the best, is it not? Um, I, I, It's definitely a great school for media and for the arts, and, and our film school is, is outstanding. You know, I love the students. I love my colleagues here, you know, it's a tremendous place. If you want to come here and, you know, learn how to work, work your way to LA, we could teach you there. But if you want to make, you know, gritty documentaries about, you know, the guy who lives next door to you, we'll, we'll teach you that too. So, you know, I think, you know, no matter what, um, you'll get a good education here. You know, I've been teaching here for a long time now and, you know, it's, we always get students who are, are are ready to kind of take on the world. Yeah, it's I, th- it's, it's I don't know. Chicago is so great too because you can just you. It is a city that encourages you to just just go fucking do it. It's like you know. I mean, I went to Columbia for theater school, but it was like then you just also you're just like I'm just gonna go do something like, and you go and do something in a shitty bar or a storefront, and it's like it makes. <laughs> makes you go after things. Yeah, it's it's very much an entrepreneurial place and what I, you know, tell my students is, you know, you you um you you know you got to figure out which direction you want to go and then you know then you got to go do it because nobody's going to do it for you. You know, it's not an industry where you know any of it, theater, comedy, you know, music film, it's, it's not going to happen by sitting around, you know, you don't like go in at the, you know, at the bottom at, at the widget corporation and kind of work your way up to the top. It's, you know, yeah. you got to, uh, you got to figure out what your path's going to be. Um, how did you get involved with Wayne Kramer for the, do and Wayne and his wife, Margaret? Cause, uh, that's, uh, I've, I've worked with Wayne a bunch, uh, just, charity wise and stuff and he when i saw that he was doing the music and when i heard the music i was like he's he's perfect (laughs) i mean he's perfect for this film yeah i know i know and you know there were a lot of happy kind of happy accidents that happened i I wouldn't say this was a total accident i would say just like 
a happy coming together of mutual um, mutual interests, you know. And in our case, um, it was the fact that we discovered that Wayne had written a song um, called uh, Nelson Aldrin Stop By, and um, which he had made in Chicago with a free jazz guy named Mars Williams back in the 90s. <clears throat> and so um, I had two producers, one was Gail Sonnenfeld, the other one, Nicole Bernardi Reese. Nicole um, knew Wayne and Margaret because she had been a producer on one of the uh, two MC5 documentaries that had been attempted in the 90s. I don't think either of them actually got finished, but, you know, for other legal reasons, uh, there, there was a whole other thing. But so um, Nicole contacted uh, Wayne and Margaret, and we were setting up an L.A. Uh, trip, and uh, we went out there, and that's how we first met them. So the goal was really just to interview Wayne as someone, as a musician who, you know, had lived his own, you know, walk on the wild side. He had, um, you know, uh, admired Algren's work, and, you know, we just, we just, you know, got to talking uh, in the interview, and then we kind of just stayed in touch. And then when he came to Chicago to do a concert, we shot some more footage of him at the Rainbow Club, which is this great 1930s place that Algren used to go to. And um, uh, then um, it just kind of evolved where, you know, uh, he uh, was, you know, we were talking and, you know, he did the whole thing of music. And it, it wasn't even like I said or he said. It was just like we just started talking about it. And um, um, before we knew it, he was, you know, doing the soundtrack. Wayne is such a it's, – it's funny because it seems like – I would say 80% of my interviews, somehow Wayne Kramer <laughs> comes up. It's so bizarre. But, I mean, this is, Definitely of course, is. organic through this, but it's uh, he's such an inspiring, and I would say, dude, like, it's he's infectious with his, his energy. Well, he's a remarkable guy, and if he doesn't make any, he doesn't conceal the fact that, you know, a good deal of his life was spent, you know, while being... Um, hooked on one or another, you know, drugs as well as spending some time in jail. But ever since he's gotten, you know, sober, his, his path has been amazing. And, and he's just, you know, it's like he's doing the work of three people, you know, to make up for a lost time, maybe, you know, he's just, he, he does so much with he and Margaret together, you know, with his, you know, the, the jail guitar doors, you know, that, that co the charity that he runs and, um, you know, the concerts they do to raise money for the, the for Jail Guitar Doors. And he just, you know, he's he's done soundtracks for several other documentaries. Um, and, you know, I got to tell you, you're, you're not going to make a heck of a lot of money doing soundtracks for documentaries. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... He's he's doing this, you know, out of just pure love and dedication, and and he brought something that was, um, you know, I was excited to know that he wanted to do our music, but I I didn't, you know, I didn't know his his abilities in jazz, you know, and um, he's we've got some classical riffs, we've got some, um, he's even got a tango riff at one point, 
I mean, his his the depth and and breadth of his uh, abilities is it's really kind of stunning. Yeah, he's pretty. He's 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 amazing. I've been just like I've been trying to figure out a way to get him and Ken Vandermark together to work. Uh, I know they're both. Oh wow! They know they both because I interviewed Ken a, a couple months ago and and then afterwards talked to him about Wayne and they they both have and Wayne has mentioned uh, Ken a number of times in interviews and I'm like I was trying to get to arrange it so Vandermark would come out and play the last Jail Guitar Doors concert that happened in September and I just I would pay pay such huge money to see those guys play together it would I I think the world would explode. <laughs> They're so great. They're so on yeah, fire. Yeah, no, that, that it's a pretty tremendous. Um, I mean, like I said, uh, Wayne's been doing free jazz for a long time. Um, and if you know a bit about, you know, the early days of MC5, they were inspired as inspired by, um, you know, Sun Ra as they were by, you know, any other rock and rollers, you know, like Chuck Berry, you know, um, so they, you know, he's always had this thing for for more freeform jazz, which I I did not know. You know, I mean, I grew up, I knew who MC5 was. They were a little before my time, you know, but um, I knew they were political. I knew, you know, they were kind of the real deal, but um, I didn't realize how complex their musicality was until you know more recently. Yeah, I never got it until I mean I knew who they were and I liked them, but I I think I was just a young kid who was like this stuff rocks, and then you listen to it as you get a little wiser and you're like, oh, this is really complex stuff. It's like, but so what is what? Yeah, yeah. Um, what is the next? Because I know the film showed in Chicago. Is it is it? Because I it's because I have so many people asking me how they can see it. Is there how can people say on the West Coast or? say in Ohio or Tennessee see this this film. Yeah, yeah. Well, these things take time, you know, especially with independent films, you know, it, it starts out slowly. <clears throat> so we just premiered at the Chicago International Film Festival. Um got three showings, two sold out evenings, 300 people plus. We had a matinee with 200 people and on Monday at 12:15 which was just amazing. Um, so now it's a matter of, you know, what comes next. And that, that becomes, you know, a matter of um, which festivals, you know, coming up next. Um, and uh, usually you go, you know, six months to a year doing festivals and getting word of mouth out there and, and building some, um, you know, uh, some a fan base. And um, then it's possible that you get some theatrical distribution. Um, I would love that, but you know, I don't. I'm not depending on it because um, most documentaries outside of Michael Moore, you know, don't. Um, and then you know, you see, is there going to be TV? You know, is it going to be a PBS thing? Is it going to be an HBO thing? And um, then eventually DVDs and you know, Netflix streaming or Hulu streaming and um, so the re the answer is, I don't know yet, but I mean, I think we'll know within about a month or so what the next screening is. Hopefully, you know, we're we're trying to set something up for the West Coast um, for uh, maybe February, or, uh, January, February, and, um, you know, city by city. Um, 
but it's exciting. You know, I mean, our, our, it, it'll take a while. Um, but, you know, I would say within a year, year and a half, it'll be something that people can just, you know, rent or stream on their computer. And uh, for my listeners, is there places they can follow you on the social media so they can keep track and uh, so they know when this fine film is coming out? Oh, heck yeah. So our our main website is allgrinthemovie, one word, dot com. And then uh, Facebook is facebook.com, allgrinthemovie. And, um, you know, the reality is um, I'd say Facebook is probably the best way to go. And if you don't do Facebook, then, you know, go to our, you know, web, our, our main uh, website, Um but those are the two main things. I do do some Twittering. We were Montrose Picks, P-I-X. Uh, Montrose is the name. Montrose Pictures is the name of the, our production company, uh, named after one of the great streets in Chicago, Montrose Avenue. You used to eat at the Montrose Diner all the time. There you go. <laughs> and the thing is, I've never actually lived on Montrose, but I've always lived <laughs> by it. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I just always, I just, I just liked it. It's one of those, those names, and it's just, I've, I've had it for about twenty plus years. So, um, yeah, go figure. It's just one of those that's stuck. That's, yeah, it's a good, it's a good name. It should stick. Well, thanks. Um, nice man. Thank you very much for your time, Mr. Kaplan. Uh, yeah, Mr. Kaplan. <laughs> Thank you, Michael. Thank you very much for listening to Conversations with Matt Dwyer. As I said at the top of the program, please use my Amazon link to, for your shopping, and uh, we get a kickback of that. I desperately need a new recorder, so that would be really helpful if you could use the Amazon link for your shopping. Also, go to themattdwyer.com if you need anything that's Matt Dwyer. You can find it there. Thank you very much. I love you. National Security Agency to assess and flag citizens of the country who may present a threat to its security. The NSA has clearance to wiretap by any means necessary. Tapped. Incidental recordings of private conversations from the files of the NSA. Now on feralaudio.com.